Hello and welcome into the J-Rod Sports Pod with me, James Robson and Ollie Dix. So today we're going to be discussing everything that's happened in the world of sport over the weekend. Now obviously there was a Formula 1 race and normally we would have Sam in to discuss that but we're going to try something slightly different today where instead of talking about it in this show we're going to do a separate half hour episode afterwards with Sam and really dive deep into everything that happened in the world of Formula 1 over the weekend. So we hope you enjoy and let's jump straight into the conversation that Ollie and I had about the main sports news this weekend. Right, so Ollie, let's start with the big news that's come out of um, the football world this morning. Looking mainly at the Champions League, Man City have been allowed to uh, compete in the Champions League for the next two years after they were initially banned because they broke the financial fair play rules. What do we think this? What kind of message do we think this sends to to clubs out there? Do they, I mean, like, because my knee jerk reaction is to say that actually. Why should clubs bother follow, bother following the financial fair play rules? Because you're not going to get punished if you don't. No, I completely agree. I think it. The message that I got from it was, you know, that that money talks, and like, if they can talk themselves out of this, like, especially with such a historically corrupt UEFA, like, it just seems like oh, it's okay actually. Like, I feel like they always knew that they were going to be all right. Yeah, and and like you get that vibe. Yeah, it it just it it makes a kind of mockery of the whole uh, system that's in in place to keep people in check. I mean, if the essentially the richest club in the UK for now and potentially the world is able to kind of buy their way out of a fine, not I'm not saying that they like officially did it, but they threw their weight around, obviously, and. Got well, and the fine was reduced as well. So, you know, like, you have to ask, like, if they did something wrong, then why are they just getting, like, a slap on the wrist and not a full punishment? Yeah, it does seem quite does seem quite an odd uh, an odd turn of events. And, and I think fan bases of, of opponents aren't exactly happy about this, this ruling, are they? Not at all, and I think especially when like well, like we've spoken so much about that um, that group of Chelsea, Leicester, and Man United, like like we've said, three doesn't go into two, but three was going to go into three. It was just a matter of who would have to go through qualification and everything. But now we are actually back into three doesn't go into two. Someone's going to miss out on the Champions League. Okay, so let's let's look at that group now. So. Providing United win today and the gap between Wolves and sixth is four points or more, do we think that Wolves are out of the running for the Champions League then? Uh, I think so, yeah. I think, well, I mean, you just can't... I, like, I think on Friday I was like, oh, definite Chelsea, Leicester, going to be great, it's fine, and then both teams just go and lose by three goals to teams like... Sh- we didn't expect Sheffield United to beat Chelsea and we didn't expect, I don't think anybody expected Bournemouth to beat Leicester. And that's just completely like changed everything. Like Man United could be third when this comes out tomorrow, which is, you know, crazy to think about where they were as we like got into lockdown. So, um, yeah, I, I call it a day for Wolves, but I don't think that's a bad thing for Wolves. 
No, I think I think playing in the Europa League is you know still going to be an amazing amazing opportunity for a club like that. I mean, and like, looking like we spoke look, about with Leicester, it's that stepping stone. Like they've now to be in the Europa League two seasons in a row to maintain staying in the Europa League positions when also playing in the Europa League. I think that's good for them that they can now start to build and you know try and build on the Champions League next year. Yeah, and I think I mean like looking at the. You know, Chelsea lost three 0 to Sheffield United and have have got Norwich on Tuesday, so they're like likely to bounce back and and kind of you'd like to think that okay that's a blip and we'll just keep moving forward. Leicester Leicester have got Sheffield United on Thursday, which I mean if you'd have asked me five years ago, are you excited about Leicester versus Sheffield United in the Premier League? I'd be like, what is it a relegation zone game or something? But no, this is this has massive implications, doesn't it? Yeah, 100%. Like, this is, like we've said, like, the, like we spoke about the um, the Arsenal-Spurs game last week. No team really wants to draw that game because it doesn't really do anything for them. And unfortunately, that means that someone misses out. But this Leicester-Sheffield United could decide which team, whether Leicester make the Champions League or whether Sheffield United make the Europa League. Yeah, and again, I think it's another one of those situations, like you said, where a draw is the worst result. 100%, 100%. And then, so, I mean, obviously it's got this Man City ruling has got implications on the Champions League, but the other thing it has implications on is obviously the Europa League, which, you know, everything is reverted back to what it normally is. So 5th, 6th and 7th will be qualifying in, in the Europa League. And if we say that one of the three that we discussed out of Chelsea, Leicester and United dropped down, you know, then you're you're looking at two teams out of six who like we can sit here now a couple, you know, with a, a few games left and go yeah, there are still six teams that could actually plausibly be in this, aren't there? Yeah, 100%. I think like you can't at the moment Wolves and Sheffield United seem to be the two teams that uh you know will join whatever team misses out on that Champions League group to to play in the Europa League next year but actually after Spurs's result and Mourinho being in charge I look I think you can't ever discount Spurs with Mourinho in charge you can't ever discount Mourinho you can always discount Spurs um <laughs> and 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 actually look I think Arsenal and Burnley are are probably just holding on with their fingertips at the moment into that. I think, like, look, if you're four points back with two games left, I think then it's it's a done deal, really. But actually, at the moment, with nine points still available, then I think they're still, like, in with a shout of it, and especially how well Burnley played against Liverpool. Yeah, I mean... Gosh, uh, that Arsenal Liverpool game is going to be huge for us, isn't it? On Wednesday, massive. And <clears throat> I saw a, I saw a title. It said, um, "Newly inconsistent Liverpool prepare to face consistently inconsistent Arsenal." And I was <laughs> like, "All right, well, if there was ever a title to like to an article to sum up this game, I think it's that. Like, since we've come back from lockdown." that has been the case we've gone through like our ups and downs as to whether you know this Liverpool team is one of the greatest ever or whether this Arsenal team has turned a massive corner and actually we're probably 
none the wiser standing here or sitting here now. Yeah. So that Wednesday evening, what we've got Arsenal against Liverpool, we've got Leicester Sheffield United, which is an, you know another huge game. And you've got Wolves Burnley, which you know is, is one of the biggest days of football, I think, like eight and ages. <laughs> and it, it's going to have such massive implications on the look of the Europa League next year, because I mean, realistically, these three games are all going. If if anyone draws this game, or anyone loses this game, you can all, like start to not count them out, but you know, momentum's going forward, and it. It's not like you're going to be losing to a top one or two side, you know, top four side. You're losing to your direct competitors and you really can't afford to be doing that at this point in the season because we don't have games in hand to, to you know, get them back against people like Norwich. A hundred percent. And I, I think and this is a scenario that I think would be crazy to happen is that if Sheffield United beat Leicester and Wolves beat... Burnley which are form which would you probably would be like okay that's realistic to kind of happen it would mean that like 5th 6th and 7th would be Leicester on 59 Wolves on 58 Sheffield United on 57 and which like, is mental yeah and, and like you could like argue with two games left one of them might sneak into the Champions League somehow which is just crazy to imagine but like if Leicester don't turn this ship around quite quickly and get everyone in order, you could see them actually being in a very dangerous position where they might somehow miss out on something. And that's just not what you want when I think they went into lockdown like 15 points ahead of Manu. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, they, they do need to get it turned around. And, and I think I think Leicester have a good culture and it's it's a culture of not not like no megastars there that they're quite a close close-knit unit so i wouldn't be surprised if they do turn it around there and actually pull out i'm not going to say a convincing win but you know a, a good performance against sheffield united who seem to have turned the corner knocked the rust off after the quarantine and and have have sort of turn themselves back into at least some re- you know we're able to recognize them as the Sheffield United before lockdown aren't we yeah 100% i agree i think like the work that they're doing there is 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 really first class and actually you know hats off to them like we wrote them off like quite convincingly i think like after two pretty poor results to stop back from lockdown and now we're actually looking at them as is, is pretty set on to potentially go on to the Europa League, which is which would be huge for for Sheffield United. Yeah, and now looking kind of at the at the uh, we've looked at the sharp end, and now let's look very much at the uh, blunt end of the Premier League. Um, Norwich have officially been relegated, and uh, I'd just like to say that we saw it coming. Uh, we it was it was one of the hottest takes that we've ever produced. Uh, that we thought Norwich would get relegated, and uh, they have. Yeah, I think our prowess in the sporting reporting world has gone up significantly on this. This <laughs> we're well on our we're well on our way to becoming insiders now because we we saw that coming from miles off. I just wait for Sky Sports to ring us for our next opinion. Now, going on that though, uh, unfortunately, 
we are facing very much a gosh like everything is now coming together at the bottom like Villa beat Palace and Bournemouth drew with Spurs and then beat Leicester which I don't think either of us expected I think the you know like we looked at them last week and we we're a bit like yeah like it kind of looks like Watford and West Ham will stay up and Villa and Bournemouth will just stay kind of where they are and that back, that gap will just kind of hold a little bit with Villa on 30 points, Bournemouth 31, Watford 34, West Ham 34 and even Brighton on 36. What do you think that looks like for like the next couple of games at least? Like, Does that stay as it is or actually are we potentially looking at a bit of change? Uh, personally, I think it, it does stay stay as it is because you've got like Villa have to win you know, six points behind Brighton is quite a long way for Villa and even if they win a game they only got one you know if they win and Brighton don't they just swap places Brighton have to win and then they're on the same points tally as as Watford and West Ham I think if Watford and West Ham sorry Bournemouth yeah I think if if Watford and West Ham were on 33 points then I'd go okay now all bets are off because one win and one loss can completely change the entire makeup of of that bottom bottom section i think um yeah i just think i think villa might well be going down just because whilst they did beat palace i mean that bournemouth there must be so much momentum in that bournemouth camp now that they i think they are the form team not the form team but they are the team with the most momentum going into these last couple of games in that bottom group and so if anyone's going to capitalise on it, it's going to be them. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think the the hardest thing for like Villa and Bournemouth, like, is that Watford and West Ham seem to have hit a bit of a rhythm late on. Like and you know, for Watford to beat Newcastle two one, like the best teams to be playing at the moment are the ones of basically all the ones we haven't mentioned. Like your Everton's, your uh, Southampton's, your Newcastle's, like teams now that don't have anything to fight for that just seem to kind of actually be be being beaten quite convincingly. Do you think that Do you think that Villa Bournemouth game is uh, Villa Everton game? Sorry, is going to go Villa's way. I think that's where we can finally either say, "All right, right Villa off," or we can say yeah all bets are off like if if we go into the last two games of the season and there are four teams all within like two points like that's a dangerous margin for any of those teams and I think that's when we start going yeah lucky dip then that's when you really have to look at the schedule and if you're if you're the sort of West Ham Brighton Watford what's your mindset going into these last couple of games is it you know you know, especially for like someone like West Ham, they've they've had good results. Is it right? Let's keep building on that, or do you start looking over your shoulder and go, actually, we've got to keep our head above water here? I I think both of the both Watford and West Ham at the moment have probably been on the like journey of like, but just win as many games as we can, like get as many points as we can, like let's kind of try and get ourselves away from this battle and at the moment the battle seems to be following them a little bit 
and I think you just have to kind of keep your head forward don't look back like the moment you start looking where somebody is like that's the moment I think you you risk tripping up and so I think they just have to keep focusing on each game as it comes and and, and like we said with the Champions League group like they just have to win out really and it's the same kind of circumstance. You can't be worrying about teams behind you, otherwise you will trip up. Okay, so now let's have a look at the um, the NFL because the Patriots have been making some waves uh, over the last couple of days by settling compensation grievances with two players who are in very different circumstances but this has caused quite a lot of cap space to be freed up hasn't it yeah so um they settled grievances with antonio brown and aaron hernandez um and they now have just under eight million uh dollars in cap space which actually for the patriots they were a bit like the chiefs they didn't have any cap space and they've somehow worked their way around it to somehow get Cam and then get enough cap space to potentially sign somebody else or a couple of other players that can make a difference to this team next year. So that's just, I mean, just in case people haven't or aren't aware of the situation that went on last year. So the Patriots signed Antonio Brown for the season after he was released by the Raiders. Uh there were a slew of allegations against him that came out and the team cut him from their roster but still owed him a lot of um a lot of his wages for the rest of the season so then there was there there's a sort of he filed a grievance against the team to see if he could get paid the money that he was owed and the team said yeah but we're not you know we we didn't we had no choice to get rid, but to get rid of you, and we had to had to move on. So we don't feel we should pay you for services that we didn't get. So that's why, you know, they've come to an agreement. They paid him a, a, an amount of money, and and the rest of the debt has been written off. So the cap space that he would have taken up in this year's cap, you know, on the deal that he had last year, is now has now become free. The other thing is the Aaron Hernandez. Uh, situation which obviously was part of the Netflix show that uh, came out earlier this year I think it was earlier this year wasn't it uh, so they've obviously settled a, a compensation grievance uh, with Aaron Hernandez's estate essentially because he was signed to a long term deal before everything uh, happened and, and the Patriots cut him yeah exactly and so like they've kind of just been I feel like they've just in the bullet a little bit with these compensation amounts arguably they would have probably liked to have fought these a little bit longer and got had to pay less money but actually in just paying off this money now it gives them the opportunity to bring somebody in that's that is in the free agent market and so let's look at some of those free agents i suppose the the big one out there is jadavian Clowney, uh defensive end spent time at seattle um, was after kind of you know mid-teens kind of money closer to 20 million a year no teams really came out and gave him that offer and because 
because of lockdown and coronavirus he's now in a bit of a situation where it's like similar to cam it's like another like one year deal bet on yourself and try and make this work uh the other one that patriots have had talks with is terrell Pryor, uh wide receiver so i suppose the thing i ask you like as you i would say you're a more committed patriots fan than myself like what do you want them to do with the cap space and would you rather them help cam out on the offense and build that or would you rather try and bring in the defense a little bit and you know like we've seen, defense can win championships, like we saw with Denver. And so, actually, is that the direction that you want Belichick to go down? I think the Jadavian the Jadavian Clowney situation seems to me like a perfect fit because you've got one of the best defensive coaches in history, potentially teaming up with one of the most versatile and powerful, um, yeah, edge rushers on a deal where everyone has written them off already for the whole season. I mean, when they signed Cam, it was suddenly like, oh, well, they're weaseling their way back into playoff discussions. But if you actually sit down and think about it, and this is me trying to be as impartial as I can, despite being a Patriots fan, you've got the greatest coach that's ever coached the sport with an MVP quarterback and the potential to get one of the most disruptive defensive players out there. And you combine that with a defensive group last year that was so dominant that they held high-scoring offences to low enough scores that a really kind of ineffective offence was able to keep pace with them for most of the season. I well, think, Yeah, until playoffs came and actually you're playing good teams every week, then actually it's... That was where the Patriots became, you know, a team in trouble. And I think you can start to expect more out of players that were on the roster last year and were young, like Nikhil Harry, who's already started working out with Cam Newton. You know, I I really think that Jadavian Clowney deal, you from just a pure purely business um, standpoint of like value for money you're getting a player there that potentially is worth 18 19 million a year and if you can get him for seven or eight that's an unbelievably good return on investment hopefully yeah and i think like the big thing for me is like we've already seen on social media that cam is is excited to prove a lot of people wrong and i think like that's the if he can bring some people along on that journey then that's going to be great for the Patriots. The only thing like I worry is that not worry. And I think like he's very, he's been around football for a very long time. So understands how things work, but we've never known the Patriots locker room to be one of individuals. And unfortunately, like Cam is a personality. And so it's, you know, like, I don't think Belichick is one of the, like, coaches that has come out and said you know like players should celebrate when you make a play like imagine working that hard and then not feeling like you can celebrate like that's awful but actually that cam dynamic in that not just with Belichick but that entire locker room is going to be so so interesting I mean I think what I would say in kind of um, 
opposition to that is you look at some of the big characters that have come in to the Patriots organization and and fit in quite well. Like you go back to Randy Moss. Randy Moss was notoriously, you know, had character questions around surrounding his name, and Belichick managed to turn him loose into into you know. And and produce one of the, the probably the best season that there ever has been for a quarterback and wide receiver combination. I think without wanting to you know take the show over with this, but I think like you, Belichick could almost leave Randy alone with Brady. Like Brady is is almost a coach playing quarterback. Like he knows so much and is so good in that or, and was so good in that sense actually that. I don't think Belichick did loads with Randy. I think Randy Moss like taught Belichick probably more about a wide receiver. I remember like the NFL like top 100 ever. Like that's that's what Randy said. Like he he almost taught Belichick more, and I think like he could do that because Brady was there as a as someone who was settled and it wasn't anything like like that. Whereas actually on the offense, Cam is now their leader, and it actually okay like you're starting to have like different conversations i think yeah no fair enough i, I i'm gonna be really inter- interested to see what they do with that cap space but so exciting for the patriots to somehow still be involved in the conversation when they should be written off which is which is great for the nfo yeah and speaking of you know from one former patriots quarterback to to another uh jimmy garoppolo seems to be losing someone who was actually really quite a large part of that 49ers backfield despite no one thinking he was yeah i mean we went into the 1920 season and i think if you'd have said raheem Mostert, then you would have gone ah yeah who's he you know like he's not a household name nobody really took that much interest in him he was a good special teams kind of guy but actually ended up being one of the biggest parts of the 49ers' run to the Super Bowl last year. Yeah, I mean, he led the, led the league in yards per carry. He was at 5.6 yards per you know touch, essentially. Now, the 49ers have got rid of Matt Breeder, who was the other, uh, one of the other running backs in the backfield, which would suggest that Mostert would get a sort of larger, more expanded role. But... I guess the the problem is when you get someone who's had a season like that and produced numbers like that and taken a team so close to winning it all, they believe they are worth more than essentially the three-year $8.7 million deal that he's on at the moment. And I think rightly so. I think that's fair. I think the hard thing for him is that he kind of like he's not willing it doesn't seem like he's willing to accept that okay like the 49ers are probably turning around to him and saying like look you signed this deal you wanted this extension and this is the money that we agreed you have outperformed this extension and when it the time comes we will pay you but for now like pay your dues almost and keep doing what we've given you the opportunity to do whereas I think he wants to be a bit like right well if you're not going to pay me now I want to go somewhere where they're going to give me an extension that's worth however much 
Yeah, and I think I think we're gonna we're uh, you know we're gonna discuss this a little bit later on when we play the very first J Rod Pod game that we we are we are gonna do later. I think you can have that discussion when you're playing most positions, but running back is such a violent position. You're being hit hard so often that actually you don't want to be thinking more than three years ahead because you. I mean the next hit could be your last and I, I, that's not that's not an overstatement by any stretch of the imagination is it no 100 percent not and i think the big thing for me when it comes to running backs is that when they're fresh they are elite like i think it was the year ezekiel elliott um was banned for like six games um the cowboys brought in another running back and he ran for over a thousand yards and everyone was like Oh, this is so good but actually he was so fresh and went into a such a good offense that he was able to thrive and I think they probably think that Moster only started getting large numbers of carries towards the end of the season was relatively fresh had never taken on this kind of load before actually you don't know how he's going to respond if he's played those first eight games of the season with that kind of load as well so I think it's interesting, like, why would you want to commit to, you know, a horse that's only run three races and, like, they, he was fresh for them all. You want someone who's actually been in the trenches a little bit and you know how their body's going to respond. Right, and then before we get to... Uh, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, our first sort of game. Uh, I, we need to think of. I think we need to think of a better word for, than game for it. Uh, special segment or something. Um, let's have a look at the cricket because England ha- have lost the Test match to the West Indies yesterday by four wickets. Now, Ollie, you and I are cricket fans, but. We don't watch Test cricket quite as religiously as some other people, so we have been in touch with one of our housemates, George, who we might convince to come on the podcast and actually put a voice to a name at some point. Uh, but George has come back with his three main takeaways from the the Test match, and we're going to have a quick discussion about it because we've done a bit of research and and watched a bit of the cricket ourselves over the weekend. So the first thing is Denley. So, essentially, Denley's on the way out of the test side because you've got Joe Root coming back. And so the decision has to be made between either Crawley or Denley as to who stays. Now, Denley's had eight innings without reaching 40. And Crawley had quite an impressive test this, this time out, didn't he, Ollie? Yeah, and I, like so he made 76 in the test and actually... Denley's done well at kind of getting himself in and kind of getting himself established and spent time at the crease, but there's not been a lot of runs to to show for it. And I think that, you know, someone in the top order, like, okay, like sometimes it's not always about runs, it's about time spent at the crease and you can get a bit of a rhythm going and then actually the runs start to come a little bit later on and he's just not made it far enough to to get those runs. And unfortunately, there are so many good English batsmen that if you don't perform for, like we said, it's only eight innings that he's not reached 40. 
So that's you know, that's not that's only four four tests, but actually already he's in the hot seat because there's new young British talent that's coming through and actually I think every English fan in the world, especially when it comes to cricket, would take Joe Root over over Joe Denley. And I think he yeah, as you said, like he's put in the hard yards early on in the innings, but he always just makes kind of mental mental errors, mental mistakes. It, you know, it's it looks like a lot of a lot of the the technical aspect is there. He looks pretty technically sound at the crease. Just sometimes he makes decisions that are hard to justify and that leads to sort of easy wickets. And you know, uh, read Ma- Michael Vaughan was interviewed uh, about the Denley situation, and and his, th- you know, his statement was, he thinks he's lucky to have been able to play fifteen tests for England, and I think that shows you how little patience there is with young talent that is brought up uh, into the test side, but also it shows you that to to stay in the test and to become an established person in the side, you need to get in there and make an impact almost straight away. Like you, you need to be pushing, you know, your half centuries, you know, pushing towards centuries. If you're a batsman early on, I think the other, the second thing that we, we need to look at was coming into this test match. Everyone knew that the the West Indies were going to be, their fast bowling attack was going to be second to none. I mean, we we were going to have our batsmen were going to really struggle with their fast bowling, but their batting lineup performed better than anyone was expecting. And I think it, uh, under exceptional circumstances, Ollie, because they've been locked away for two weeks, haven't they? Yeah, and I mean, not only did they were they flown over here like by the ECB to come and play this game they were then you know locked away in hotels to just quarantine for two weeks to make sure that everyone was healthy and that's just it's not a formula that you'd expect uh any cricketing team or any sporting team to perform well under having gone through that um but what it does show is actually there's some level heads in that West Indies team and Okay, like like you said, the the bowling attack was formidable and showed its strength, but the batsmen really actually went out there and played a solid game. And actually, on paper, you'd usually probably take England over the West Indies because you'd expect England's batsmen to outperform the West Indies. Whereas actually, that didn't really happen this time, and actually ended up with with England losing by four wickets. Yeah, and I mean. I'd say 10 or 15 years ago that this would have been a game that you would have handed to England. Um, and it, Well, no, in the last 10 or 15 years, it's become that. But the West Indies have a, you know, quite a, a severe, a, a significant cricketing reputation. And they always produce, they, they have always produced batting displays that, you know, are tough to match and I think it, it it's are we looking potentially at a coincide a, a coincidence of an England team in in a slight decline and a Windies team that's that's in a resurgence and back to sort of form that that is exciting and and 
captivating to watch. But I think that the overlying uh, story that's come out of this test match is the situation surrounding Stuart Broad, who was dropped from the test side before the test. I mean, do we think Broad needs to come back, Ollie? I I think it depends on how English cricket wants to, you know, like <clears throat> face its problems. Like actually watching Archer and Wood together was one of the most exciting parts of the test. And, you know, we've watched Anderson and Broad for for years now make some batsmen look silly, but it's actually refreshing to see a bit of a, a like a newly established pair in Wood and Archer. And so actually look, this is Broad cannot be an excuse for England. Broad's great on his day, but you need to be able to win without Broad. And I think that actually going forward, yes, it will bolster England's bowling attack, but I don't think it should take away from actually how poorly the batsman performed. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I and I think I think with the with the fuss that has been kicked up in the media, I think he might get a look into the next couple of games. But you're right, if England you know, England need to keep innovating their team and their selection policies to to remain a powerhouse in the cricketing world. And by allowing people who you know, by allowing people like Stuart Broad who might you know, might be on the downslope of their career to be allowed to go out there and, and bowl in test matches is is only going to hurt you moving forward and I think it's in some ways time to show a little bit of faith and a little bit of uh, confidence in the younger generation and rely on the fact that they can step up and produce uh, produce results for for England for the ECB and I mean the the talent in that young group is so exciting and so captivating that I think it's something that as cricket fans we all want to see and we want to see a bit of patience being given to them so that they can figure out how to play first-class test cricket um, and play it well. Well, I think and that's it. Like That's why England have had so much success with one-day cricket and 2020 cricket is because there are so many exciting players that feel so comfortable playing that kind of cricket now. And actually... You know, it's a bit like sometimes we talk with baseball. Actually, you need at bats, and with cricket, like, is the same thing. You need to sit there and be allowed on the international stage to have, you know, so many at bats to kind of get comfortable because it is a different sport than county cricket. Like, you know, not going back to him too much, but Denley will be one of the best county cricket batsman there is in the game right now like if he goes back and when county cricket starts playing again but actually on the international stage it's so different that like sometimes you just need to give someone the opportunity to play long enough so they can get comfortable with it Right, and now let's just quickly, before we get on to um, our last segment, let's just mop up a little bit on on the state of play in the US when it comes to the coronavirus outbreak. And instead of actually, you know, focusing on one sport, we're going to look at 
just sport in general over there because a lot has happened in the last couple of uh, days. I mean, I think the first thing to point out is that case numbers in the states and especially in the states that are you know down south that opened up early and and are soon to be hosting these newly reopened sports are shooting up Ollie. I mean Florida set a US state record yesterday for the for the most cases in a day with over 15,000. I mean how much of a worry is this for sport? Obviously it's a worry for the general population and we understand when we're discussing this that sport doesn't really matter when it comes to this. I mean public health is far more important, but if we can just look at the sporting side of it, how much of a how much of an issue is this? I mean, the the biggest concern, like with American sports, is actually that all of the bubbles that we talk about that are taking place. So actually, your your NBA and your MLS bubbles are both in Orlando, which is in Florida. So these bubbles that we have that are, you know have teams and players quarantining, staying in hotel rooms every day, they are in the middle of you know the the most intense part of the pandemic in in the USA and that's actually quite a worry the other thing is like if we look at um football you have the Miami Dolphins the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Jacksonville Jaguars that are all based in Florida so actually when the NFL starts to come back that's a concern because you have all these players coming from there and then again with baseball you have the Miami Marlins and the Tampa Bay Rays so actually you're just looking at yeah, I look for me. This is a, a massive concern, and and the US hasn't shied away from wanting to, like, from from wanting to carry on with sports, and and I think that this will somehow become a focus, like, for the government and everything, and it will become mandatory to wear masks and and all like those kind of things to actually make sure that sports can go ahead. Because if this carries on, then like Florida, I think, will be in a complete lockdown. Okay, and now let's move to our last slightly more fun section and we're going to look this is this is a something that we we might well roll out over other sports uh, in the in the coming weeks but and, until now let's let's play a game called the over un- under championships. Over under championships. There we go. So basically we're going to go through each position's highest player and think and have a discussion, a quick discussion about whether they are overpaid or underpaid so these are gonna we're gonna leave it at not including incentives um so what that means is that you know just the the guaranteed base salary of each player so let's start with the quarterback and we've kind of discussed him a little bit last week but patrick mahomes 450 million dollars 10 years do we think he's overpaid or underpaid uh at the moment overpaid at the end of it underpaid I think, I think, I, I think he might be. I think he might be underpaid. Just because I, just because I think he could earn more money if he hadn't signed a ten-year deal. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, and then we move on to uh, the running back Ezekiel Elliott, 
uh, signed a six-year, $90 million deal. Um, however, Christian McCaffrey, average, uh, his average is more because he signed a four-year, $64 million uh, contract. So we'll do both. Elliot, overpaid or underpaid? Overpaid. Overpaid. Why? You don't want... I- you don't want to sign a running back for that long. I think that it's the it's the year the years figure that I uh, I really struggle with there. You you know he hasn't he's he's been plagued with injuries and off the field issues, and I just think you're committing a large portion of your cap space to someone who isn't consistently going to be on the field for you. Yeah, I agree. And overpaid especially, and we'll get on to this, but the Cowboys' offensive line is so good that the amount of money they have given Elliot is, I think, like respect, retrospectively will look extortionate. Uh, Christian McCaffrey, last year's, um, probably, arguably, uh, like last year's MVP at times. I'm going to go underpaid, you go. Underpaid. And just because he does more than run the football, doesn't he? I think he carried that Panthers team last year, and very rarely can we say that for a positions player. Completely, I you know he he took a team that didn't have any business being competitive and made them competitive in in close situations, and and you know for that I think yeah he deserves every penny of that contract. Cool. And then we're looking, uh, you can see why Dak Prescott is a little bit annoyed that he's not been paid his money because this is just full of cowboys. So Amari Cooper, a hundred million, five years at the wide receiver position, underpaid or overpaid? Overpaid. Overpaid. Yeah, I agree. Because he's not Julio Jones. And until you're like, you... (laughs) That that list is... The list of who he's not is definitely a lot longer than just Julio Jones as well. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I just I think Julio Jones is by far the best receiver in the league. And I think DeAndre Hopkins. No, sorry, but no, that's a discussion for another day. Maybe okay. we can. <laughs> but but uh, okay, even if we throw DeAndre Hopkins in there, Amari Cooper is neither of those two people, and he is being paid significantly more than them. Hundred percent, yeah. I think like Cooper, like coming out of college, he was sought after. Like his route running was already of an NFL standard, and actually, sometimes we do still see that kind of. He's a bit above the rest, but I don't think he's an elite number one receiver, which is which. Then you shouldn't be getting a hundred mil for five years. No. Okay, uh, moving on to tight end position, a uh, bit of like asterisk here and um, we've got Travis Kelsey uh, Kansas City Chiefs 46.8 million for five years he signed that in 2016 so with Mahomes' deal that's quite interesting coming coming to what's uh, with what's coming up but uh, Rob Gronkowski did sign a 54 million six-year deal um, which obviously got separated because of the years that he um, took out of the league so Kelsey underpaid or overpaid um, probably very slightly overpaid. Yeah, and Gronk. Uh, I think that's about right, actually. And I'm gonna buck the trend on on the over and under. I think actually that's probably about right. Just because he's so versatile, he's far better at blocking than Travis Kelsey is. Actually, when you look at the way the Patriots used him towards the end of his tenure up there, he was essentially a, a lineman that occasionally broke out and, and ran 
ran a, an amazing route. So, yeah, I think I think Gronkowski might be just about right there. Yeah, good. Okay, I agree. Um, offensive tackle, Tyron Smith, uh, 97.6 million, eight years for the Cowboys. Uh, again, underpaid or overpaid? Uh, overpaid. Really? Why? I just think actually the progression through that position is not as much as people like it. it you are better when you're a veteran, but there, I think there definitely is someone who's of a similar standard uh, and is cheaper out there. Yeah, uh, I think anywhere else that figure is overpaid for the Cowboys. I think that's about right. Uh, offensive guard Zach Martin also with the Cowboys 84 million six years underpaid or overpaid uh, I think that's probably again just a little bit overpaid just because I think um, I, I think they they paid for the name as much there as they did for the the talent yeah no well, that's fair um, center um, so Travis Frederick was a cowboy but had to retire last year. He was 56 million, uh, six years, um, but now retired. So Brandon Linder for the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, 51.7 million for five years. Underpaid or overpaid? I'd probably say uh, about underpaid to just about right. But I think the interesting thing is the difference there between your tackles, your guards and your centres, because actually the centre has a lot more to think about than those uh than than people think they they're part of calling protection plays they're part of reading the defense and understanding what the line the offensive line is going to do and they're kind of that offensive line's captain so it surprises me quite a lot that they're paid significantly less uh than a tackle and a guard yeah no i agree i think the hard thing for me with that linda one is that he's not exactly a regular at the pro bowl and so it surprises me if you're one of the best at your position like we said with the Cooper like why are you being paid like you are okay so that's offense done move on to our defense uh, defensive tackle Aaron Donald 135 million for six years underpaid or overpaid probably I'd say underpaid really uh, the most um, the most disruptive I think player in in football he can he he can make even the most potent offences really struggle. Yeah, and, and a guy that I think on every offensive programme will probably be double teamed. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, uh, defensive end. We've got a few close ones here, uh, like JJ Watt on 100 million, Frank Clark 104. But uh, our leader is Demarcus Lawrence, again of the Cowboys, 105 million, five years. What do we think? Um... I'm going to go slightly overpaid. Yeah. I I don't think any I don't think any um defensive end because you're coming at at the lineman with with that much more speed there's a fair amount more uh collision impact and and you see with JJ Watt just struggles to keep on the field with injuries left right and center. And so I think that's a long time and a lot of money to be committing to a position where you're probably not going to get that time out of them. And such a like up and down kind of position when it comes to like stats, like before this contract, Lawrence, like we saw, it was like just before the all or nothing um, series with the Cowboys, like 
was arguably one of the best Cowboys players since signing the deal. Not the same player, and unfortunately, sometimes you get that the case. That's the case when you sign these big deals. Okay, uh, outside linebacker Khalil Mack, uh, 141 million six years. I'm going to say underpaid, and I'm going to say underpaid because I think, as an outside linebacker, you are, um, you're doing two jobs. You're not. You're not. You know. You're. You're as much in pass protection as you are in getting to the quarterback and and I think it's it's a real uh jack of all trades position that that actually if you can find someone that does it to the appropriate standard you need to pay them to make sure they stay there 100% and I think if somebody wasn't to agree with you and say that Aaron Donald was the most disruptive player in the NFL I think it'd be silly if they didn't then turn around and say if Khalil Mack was that most disruptive player yeah it's between the two of them yeah, exactly. Inside line, inside linebacker uh, CJ Mosley uh, for with the Jets, eighty-five million five years. Uh, I'm not even going to ask you this because if you don't say overpaid on this, I'm not sure if we can keep going on with this game. Yeah, and I think that all it needs to tell, all, all you need to look at for that is that the Jets are paying him eighty-five million dollars, and and you know you look at the fact that the Jets have made uh, the grand total of zero good business decisions in the last decades last few decades so yeah if there's a Jets player on a highest paid list you probably think it's overpaid yeah and I mean he was a good player when he was at Baltimore and actually I think it says a lot when someone performs so well somewhere and actually a team that can pay him decides not to pay him that much money um then we go uh back to the Cowboys a little bit uh Landon Oh no, Redskins, sorry. Landon Collins, uh, 84 million, six years at the safety position. Uh, Robbie? Uh, I'm going to say overpaid. I think six years for a safety is a long time. And you look at people like even, you know, Tyron Matthew, who's considered one of the better, you know, one of the better safeties out there, is not being paid that amount of money and is not being given a contract of, of that length. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a robbery that he somehow ended up with that. Um, and then we move to the Dolphins for our uh, cornerbacks. Uh, Byron Jones at $82.5 million for five years and Xavier uh, Howard, 75.3 for five years. These two both play for the Dolphins and are the two highest paid cornerbacks in the league. Um, so as a pairing, underpaid or overpaid? Uh, I'm going to say as a pairing, probably overpaid slightly, but I, it's interesting that the Dolphins are going down the attitude of we're not going to invest in the D-line, we're going to invest in making sure that your quarterback, regardless of how long he's got to throw the ball, has got no one to throw the ball to. Yeah, no, I agree. I think individually these look a little bit on the expensive side and are very much in an inflated market, but like together you would hope that actually it's a good financial decision thank you very much for listening to that episode of the j-rod sports pod with me james robson and ollie dix as we mentioned earlier we didn't quite manage to cover the formula one race that happened yesterday But don't worry, we are releasing a 35-minute episode with our special guest host, Sam Corti, after this, 
which breaks down everything that happened in the Mysterian Grand Prix. But until then, make sure that you subscribe, follow us on social media, and let us know if there's anything you want to hear.